This message is brought to you by 12 Stone Church. Pastor Kevin Queen delivers this teaching entitled, How to Measure Maturity. This is the fourth message in the series, Real Mature. We hope this serves you well. Please enjoy. Welcome to 12 Stone, week four of our series, Real Mature, where we're talking about how we grow, how we develop spiritually and spiritual maturity. And uh, in this whole conversation about spiritual maturity can, can kind of seem elusive. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's not like most other areas in life where, where you know. I mean, how do you know if you're growing in spiritual maturity? In other areas of life, you, you know whether you're growing or not. I mean, think about physical stature. Think about height for a second. Um, you know when you're, when you're growing. I, when our kids were little, we started doing this thing on their closet door where we would go and we would take a Sharpie and we'd write how tall they were and then we put the date and their age. And just over the years, it's been cool for them to see. It's, been, you know, it's, it's always surprising for them to look and see how much they've grown. But as a parent, it's like a little bit depressing. You know, you're watching, you're like, man, you were growing so, so fast. And, um, and then, uh, but my wife and I, we don't do that on our closet door. Like we don't, every year we don't go and write how, how tall we are. Um, because there came a point in life where I just had to receive and just had to accept that, that, that six feet tall is as tall as I'm going to grow. And I just had to just accept that. And it was just one of those things that said, okay, Lord, I'll take it. Yeah. All right, 5'10". Five, nine and a half. I mean, the thing is, we can be in denial. We can be in denial about our, our height. But, you know, the reality is we know if we're growing or if we're not. And, and in most areas of life, you know if you're growing or if you're not. And, and like in sports, you can look and you see the stats. And in, in academics, you can see the test scores. In business, you can see profitability and performance. But how do you know when it comes to spiritual maturity whether, whether you're making progress or whether you're growing? And so in this series, Pastor Kevin has, has laid out for us these, these three aspects or dynamics of spiritual maturity. The first one is spiritual intimacy. That's your relationship. It's this relational connection with God. Holy obedience is what we talked about last week. And then we talk about biblical knowledge. And, and the way we talk about these three things is that they're, they're, not, uh, they're, they're, they're not something you can just kind of take apart and just take one and just say, I'm just going to do that. But spiritual maturity is all three of these intertwined and interwoven, woven together. You, you, can't, you can't separate the three. And just because you have one of these things doesn't mean that you're spiritually mature. Just because you have biblical knowledge doesn't mean that there's spiritual maturity. I mean, you can, you can believe the Bible. You can have the Bible memorized from table of contents to the maps. And you can have theological degrees, but it doesn't mean that you have spiritual maturity. It makes me think of, um, I was taking a seminary class on the West Coast with a, a good friend of mine was taking it also. And his name's David. We've known each other since Cub Scouts. And we were at the airport. We had just landed over there and we were kind of waiting. And I, I asked him a question. I said, David, I said, um, I said how have I grown? I mean, you've been knowing me for 25 years. How have I grown? How have I spiritually matured um, in the time you've known me? And he said, that's easy. He said, you, you don't know as much as you used to. <laughs> he said, you used to always have to be right. And I, I didn't like his answer. Because I didn't like how easy it was for him to answer. I don't like the fact that he said that's easy. Like, I want him to at least think about, well, let me ponder that, Kev. There's just... But, but no, he had a quick answer for me. But here's what I do like. I do like the fact that there's some, 
progress in life. And I think what that, what that shows me, just, just because you might have biblical knowledge doesn't mean that you have spiritual maturity. And just because you have one of those things or you're going after one of those things means that you're mature as a whole. So how do you know if you're developing in spiritual maturity? How do you know if you're growing? Well, spiritual maturity is God's process of changing you and transforming. It's not, it's not you knowing facts about God. It's you knowing him personally. And in the course of that relationship, you, you, you knowing God and having a relationship with this living word and that he begins to, to transform you and change you. And spiritual maturity is you growing to become who God created you to be. It's you growing into who God created you to be. It's not a self-improvement project based on your strength and on your skills and all the trying you can muster up. It is a transformation process based on grace and surrender and trusting him. See, it's, it's God working in you to make you more like his son. If you're taking notes, I want to give you a, kind of a working definition of the day of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is you becoming more like Jesus. You want to just kind of whittle it down to what is spiritual maturity all about? All about? It's all about God's process of helping you become more like Jesus. And that's what he's bringing all of his resources to. That's the goal of spiritual maturity, that you would become more like Christ, that you would become Christ, like Christ, that you would grow in Christ likeness. In fact, this is what Paul talks about and what he goes after. He says this is the point of his ministry. You see this in Colossians 1, 28. He says, so we continue to preach Christ to each person using all wisdom to warn and to teach everyone in order to bring each one into God's presence as a mature person in Christ. What he's saying is we're doing everything we're doing in ministry for this person to help you mature in Christ likeness, to help you grow, to become more and more like Jesus. See, that's God's great goal for, for, for spiritual maturity is, is Christ's character in you. It's Christ's character through your personality. And the more you become like Jesus, the more you discover who you were created to be. See, your life is God's construction project. I grew up with a dad that was in construction. When I was a, when I was a kid, my father was a project manager for 7585 inside the perimeter and, uh, and so he, uh, he actually, he built the Piedmont Bridge. That was one of the bridges that he built. Um, this is a picture of it back in the early 80s. And uh, that, that's the bridge that goes, but 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 have you ever been driving to Atlanta and driving across, but my dad did that. Um, I don't know if that's good or if that's bad. I don't know, but I know that that's the bridge that he built. And uh, he would take me with him on Saturdays, take me down to the, to the job site, and he would put me on a lap of a crane operator. And so I'd get to sit there with somebody who was a crane operator, you know, on one of those, on one of those bridges. And I don't know if it passed OSHA standards. I just know it was really cool as, a, uh, as an eight-year-old. And, and so, you know, I'm a, as I'm experienced as a kid and experiencing that bridge. And, and, and some of you have already figured out that's the bridge that was destroyed back in March. That was the bridge that in a moment, I mean, think about it, think about it. My dad spent a chunk of his life working on this project, this construction project to build this bridge. And then in a moment, traffic is a nightmare. In a moment, local businesses are devastated. The economy is devastated. In a moment, we actually start using 285 again. I mean, in a moment, things, things change for the, for the city. And, and, and you, you think about it, that's a lot like sin in our lives. Like sin in our lives, the destruction and the havoc that sin. But when we leave God's design, it brings regret and it, it can it tear apart families. I mean, we, we, know that we know the pain that it can bring in relationship. It erodes trust. You lose a career. Destroy relationships, friendships. 
We know the pain that sin brings into our lives. We know the destruction that it can bring. It reminds me of what Warren Buffett said, I read it years ago. He said, it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. And like that. And we all know in some way or another, we all can look back in the rearview mirror of our lives and we can see where our, our decisions have cost us greatly. We see where our failures, where our mistakes, where our habits have, have taken, us, taken us out. We all know the, the pain of regret. And you know what? Sometimes we try to do things to make it feel better about our guilt and our shame. And so we like compare ourselves with other people. We're like, well, at least I didn't burn down 85. Like, you know what? That, that works for a moment. Like to compare ourselves with other people and our sin with other people. It works for a moment to push down our guilt and shame. But it's not a long-term solution. The only long-term solution for our guilt and our shame is the cross. That's the only solution for our sin. We've all made a mess of things. Each of us, each of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The only long-term solution for our sin is the cross. And look at this scripture. Let me share it with you. This is 2 Corinthians. Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So on the cross, Jesus took our sin upon himself that we might become the righteousness of God. That God took our worst, our worst was placed on Jesus at the cross so that his best could be put in us. So that he might might shape us and form us and make us more and more like Christ. But you need to know that at that moment where you trusted Jesus, your sin was forgiven. That you experienced redemption, that that you you found salvation in him. In a moment, that takes place. That's God's grace. But his grace continues, and he, can, he continues to shape us and transform us in this construction project of making us more and more like Christ. Your life is God's construction project. And here's what we know. I mean, 85, I mean, they put that thing back up quick. I mean, it was like, it's like the fastest civil construction project in history. 700 feet of bridge in six weeks. It's remarkable. But even as quickly as it happened, construction always takes time. And your life being constructed, God working in your life to make you more and more like Jesus, it's, it takes time. I, I had a chance to go to the Billy Graham uh, Library up in Charlotte last year. And as we were up there, we were walking around. It's an incredible experience with the family. We were walking out, and there were these memorial gardens. And we had a chance to go through the memorial garden. And we saw this gravestone, this grave marker for Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife. And, and it captured my attention, what I saw there. And um. And I found out the story of why she put on her grave marker what she did. See, the story goes that she was driving down the road and she was going through this long, long construction project. In fact, there was all the machinery and the, the barrels and the signs and the heavy equipment. And it just, took, it just took so long to get through this. And I mean, it was frustrating and it was long delays. And, and as she finally got to the end, there was a sign. And here's what the sign says. It's on her grave marker. The sign said, end of construction, thank you for your patience. And at the end of her life, she didn't point back to the accolades. She didn't point back to the accomplishments. She didn't point back to to, to notoriety. She said, you know what? The construction project is over. Thank you for your patience. And that if you're in Christ, one day the construction project will be over. That when you take your last breath on this earth, your next breath will be with him. And you will be with him, but not just with him. You will be made like him. That 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 construction project and the the, the long, difficult process of God forming you and making you more like Christ, that one day we will be transformed and like him. Look at the scripture from Philippians. 
It says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, whom by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What that's saying is that heaven is not the goal. Heaven is the destination. The goal is that you would be made like Jesus. So God's construction project here on earth is that he's working to transform and conform and make you more and more like Christ. And he's using every trial in your life, every test in your life, all the twists and turns and challenges and adversity and suffering. God's not wasting it. He's using it to make you more and more like Jesus. And sometimes in the long construction process, we can forget what's being worked on. We can forget the goal. We can forget the purpose. And we can get defeated and discouraged and think that he's left us. He hasn't left you. He's at work in you. And sometimes it would be good for us just to turn around. And see how far he's brought us because we're real aware of how far short we fall fall of Christ. (laughs) And sometimes it'd be good to turn around and look and see how far he's brought you. That you might not be who you're supposed to be, but you're not who you were. And the distance there, the gap there is a reminder that God was faithful to get you where you're at today. He's going to be faithful to get you to where he wants you to be. God is at work in you and he's faithful. Your life is his construction project. And so you join him in the work. Well, how do you know? How do you know the work? What are the mile markers for the journey? How do you know if you're growing in spiritual maturity? I want to give you two ways in our time that we have left. Two indications that we're growing in Christ-likeness. The first one I want to give you is live intentionally. Live intentionally. When you hear the word intentionally, I want you to think about focus and mission and meaning and purpose and significance. And in the Gospels, you see that Jesus lived intentionally. I mean, you see it early on in his life. One of the earliest snapshots we have is Luke chapter 2. Turn there with me. Luke chapter 2 in a worship center Bible is going to be page 1028. 1028 in a worship center Bible. If you've got a mobile device, we're going to pick up Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Now, the story that we're turning to is one of the earliest stories we have of, of Jesus Mary and Joseph have taken him to the temple in Jerusalem for Passover to celebrate the Passover, the festival. So they got all their extended family. They're traveling together. It was a three-day trek. They finally get to the city. They go up to Jerusalem. When they get there, they observe the Passover, and now it's time to go back home, and they're walking back home. And as they're traveling back, they get a day away from Jerusalem where they realize, "Uh uh-oh, we don't have Jesus. That's a bad day. I mean, it's one thing. It's one of your other kids, but you've lost the Son of God. You've lost the savior of the world. Like, so, so panic and anxiety sets in. And listen, they don't have technology. They don't have like a Find My Messiah app. I mean, Mary's looking at her phone. She's trying to figure out how do, we, how do we find Jesus? So they start backtracking, go back to Jerusalem. When they get to Jerusalem, they get to the temple and they find Jesus. And he's sitting there with the religious leaders of the day having conversation. And he's asking them questions. And he's just astounding them, just blowing their mind with his wisdom, with his questions. At 12 years old. And Mary and Joseph find him and they're like, Jesus, what in the world? What are you thinking? Like, did you not know that we were looking for you? Did you not know that we were, we were anxious trying to find you? And look at verse 49. Jesus said, why were you searching for me? Yes. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Another translation. Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Mary said, get to the camel. No, she didn't say that, but... <laughs> might have. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. 
Here's the reason I share this with you. Even at 12, Jesus had clarity of his purpose. Even as a preteen, he had this passion and this priority. He had this single-mindedness of what he's here to do. Because of the oneness that he had with his heavenly father, he knew what he was supposed to do. Here's what I want you to see. You might want to, walk, you might want to write this down. The closer you walk with God, the clearer your purpose becomes. The closer you walk with God, the clearer your purpose becomes. Have you ever like walked into a room in the house and then gone, man, why am I, why am I here? There are people who spend, and it's possible to spend entire decades of your life like that. You can spend the majority of your life like that, walk around and go, why am I here? It's not the Father's will that you would wonder why you're here. It's his will that you would walk with him. And the closer you walk with him, the more clarity you get on purpose in your life. You're not a cosmic accident. God has made you with intention. He's made you with purpose. He's created you with meaning. And it's futile and it's frustrating to try to find your meaning in life without knowing your maker. And God's designed it where we can know him and he's revealed himself to him. And the closer we walk with him, the more he reveals to you. Here's why you're here, because he's created you with intention. And it's only through the one who made you with intention, through the designer, that you find the intentionality for your life. Man, I talk with people sometimes and just kind of what I get back is, man, listen, when I graduate when I graduate high school, then I'll get serious about finding purpose. Or when I, when I graduate grad school, then I'll get serious. Or when I, when I get married, when I find spot, then I'll get into, or when I have kids, and then I'll get, and then I'll get serious about, about finding purpose. And when I, when I, when I save up for 401k, you know, when I put something away from retirement, then I'll get, then I'll get serious about it. When I make, make even more money, then I'll get, then I'll get serious. And when I'm, after I enjoy my retirement, I'll, it's possible to get to the end of your life and not have clarity of why you're here. It, it's possible to get to the end of your life and end up somewhere that's not your destiny. It, it's possible to get to the end of your life and it be like Denny's. Um, here's the thing I've noticed about Denny's. Next time you go there, just look around. You know, Denny's the restaurant. What I noticed, when you look around Denny's, nobody that's around you came there on purpose. Have you ever had a conversation with someone? Hey, man, where do you want to go eat? Hey, let's go to Denny's. No, you don't choose to eat at Denny's. Denny's is where you go when the other places are full. Denny's is where you go when you didn't make a plan. Denny's is the default for bad planning. Now, I'm not saying I like Denny's. I mean, I grand slam all day long, but I'm just saying I never choose to go to Denny's. And many people end up at the end of their life somewhere that they would have never chosen. Somewhere they didn't want to be. It wasn't God's intention, God's design for their life. But they try to find their purpose apart from their maker. And God wants to reveal your purpose to you. He wants to give you your why in life. And the closer you walk with him, the clearer your purpose becomes. There's a book that Simon Sinek wrote called Start With Why. And the big idea behind the book is that great organizations and great leaders, they don't start with how or what, they start with why. 
And it's in the why that you find your belief, is that you find your purpose, that you find a sense of meaning. It's a, it's a great little book, and I would, I would recommend it. But I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 4, verse 42. And I want you to know that this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing, he's traveling around. In Luke 4, 42, it says at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place and the people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to, uh, to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Listen, Jesus knew his why. Jesus started with why before it was cool. Jesus knew his why. He, he's like, I'm here to proclaim the good news. I'm here to proclaim the gospel, the kingdom. I can't stay here. I got to go to other towns also. See, Jesus told him, I can't, I, I haven't come here to, to establish a little, a little camp here in Galilee. I haven't come here to, to kind of to create a comfortable and convenient life. Jesus said, I'm here because I've got to preach and proclaim the kingdom and I've got to go to other towns. Listen, Jesus was able to disappoint people because he knew his why. The clearer you are on your why, the more able you are to tell people no. See, an intentional life requires that you tell people no. Because have you noticed that other people have plans for you? See, other people have things they want you to do. Well, can you volunteer over here? And can you help out with this project? And you do this thing? And you come help me? There, if you want to live an unintentional life, Either do nothing or try to do everything. But an intentional life, you know your why. And when you know your why, you're able to say no to other things. And when you find yourself, and I find myself doing this sometimes, when I, try, when I say yes to everything, it's usually because I've lost my why. When you lose your why, you lose your way. And Jesus knew what to say yes to, and he knew what to say no to. So let me ask you a question. Is there something in your life right now that you need to let go of? As you step back and you look at your calendar and you look at your commitments and you look at your, you look at your priorities and, and you look at your why. You look at the things that matter most and the things that are eternal and the things that are significant. Are there things in your calendar and in your lives, maybe even commitments that you've made, conversations that you've had, Places that you, things that are filling up your calendar. You go, you know what, I just, I need to say no to some things so that I can put my yes back where it counts. Jesus knew what to say no to and he knew what to say yes to. And there's, there's an intentionality. And I want to give you two places that I see this intentionality. The first one is he had intentional rhythms. He had intentional rhythms. And the second is he had intentional relationships. Let me look at the intentional rhythms. Turn over to Luke chapter six. Luke chapter six, Henry Nouwen, author, writes about how Jesus had this priority in his life, or he had these, these rhythms, he had these practices, he had this pattern. And to show you, I'm gonna show it to you and then we'll go back and unpack it. We'll pick up six, chapter six, verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. And he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon. 
who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. Now, if you look back at this, this section of scripture, what, what Nowen points out, and he says it continues all throughout Luke, is there's this pattern of solitude. Jesus goes and he pulls away from the crowd. He pulls away just him and the Father, and he's filled with God's love, with his favor, and with that communion, with that oneness with him, and he prays. And then he goes into relationship. He goes into community, and he picks 12 disciples. He pulls them around him. And then after that, he goes into ministry, and he gives himself away, and he loves, and he serves, and he cares for others. And this pattern in Jesus' life of solitude, community, ministry, solitude, community, ministry, it's a rhythm that enables him to be effective in what he's called to do in his why. What are the rhythms in your life? What are the things that when you pull back and you look at your calendar, what are the things when you look at every single day, every single week, every single month, those things that keep showing up? Maybe it's getting together with your small group or a date night with your spouse or reading to your kids at night or going out on a walk. Maybe it's pulling away and spending, spending time in prayer with the Father. Maybe it's praying with your spouse. Maybe it's getting together with, with friends. Maybe it's working out. What are the things, what are the rhythms in your life? Because your life is a product of the rhythms that you have. And maybe what God would just encourage you to do, hey, I want you to refine your rhythms. I mean, maybe it's something as simple as making pancakes on Saturday mornings with the kids. And it's just something that they can look forward to, that you can look forward to every Saturday morning. But it's a rhythm. What are the rhythms of your life? Jesus had these rhythms of solitude, community, ministry. Solitude, community, ministry. And I believe solitude was the secret for Jesus. Before all the voices, can you imagine how many people were, were tugging to him? How many people were coming to him? How many people were sending him meeting requests? How many people were, were asking for time with Jesus? I mean, can you imagine the people just lined up? Can you imagine the demands that were on him? Can you imagine the pressure of Jesus having to disappoint people and leave that town? I believe solitude was the key. That's where he knew what his, his father's will was. I believe it was in solitude that, that he pulled away before all the voices that would come his way. He heard from the one voice that matters most. Man, maybe, maybe, maybe like, like me and that, man, you, you really want to, like you want to make people happy. But you know that sometimes it's going to be required that you disappoint other people in your day to please your father. Jesus, I heard a great definition of leadership. It's leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can stand. See, sometimes we have to disappoint other people, but we need to know what to say yes to and what to say no to. And we find that in solitude. I believe solitude was a secret. Jesus was, in, he was intentional with his rhythms and intentional with his relationships. He comes down off the mountain. The first thing he does is he, he picks 12 disciples. He gathers them closely. Like, Come on. And he gathers these apostles to, to, to spend life with them. And he was very intentional about who he picked. You know, I'm not so sure that we're intentional about our relationships. I think it's a lot like the high school lunchroom. You remember walking in the lunchroom? Come on, you do. Even right now, some of you are sweating just thinking about it. I mean, just the anxiety of stepping into the lunchroom that first day and looking around and going, okay, where am I going to sit? You know the pressure of that moment? And, and, and I'm thinking in that moment, a lot of times we weren't looking, hey, I want to pick really great friends. I want to have really healthy relationships. I realize that the five closest friends are, are the most influential thing in my life. So I'm going to pick no. I think we kind of gravitate to where we're accepted. I think in the, at the high school lunchroom, it's like, hey, come sit over here. Okay, right? I mean, it's like... We don't pick who our friends are at that moment. 
Now, we'd be doing well to pick who our friends are. And some of our worst moments from high school came from the fact that we go, okay, I'll go over here, right? But your friendships determine the direction and quality of your life. I've heard it said that you are the average of your five closest friends. So we should pick our friends, but, but Jesus was very intentional with his relationships. And he called these disciples, he called these apostles around him, and he formed his first small group. And Jesus, why did he pick the disciples? Why did he, why did he gather them around? Because I believe he, he saw the best in people. He believed the best for people. And he believed these guys could change the world. But I think there was another reason he chose them. I think it's because he needed them. Now, not like some emotionally insecure, <laughs> suck the life out of people kind of way. I think Jesus picked them because he needed to love them and he needed to be loved by them because he was human. Fully God, fully man. So if Jesus needed that kind of relationship, you need that kind of relationship too. Because I'll tell you this, that relationships are God's primary tool for shaping us and molding us and making us more like Jesus. And some of the reason that our spiritual growth is stunted is because we don't have anybody around us who's helping us become more like Jesus. That's why we do small groups. I got a great story from, uh, from Jake, one of our small group leaders out of Hamilton Mill. He was leading a God owns it all small group and they were helping people get, uh, get biblical principles of finances in place in their life. And, and there's a family that joined the group because they said they were drowning in debt and they said they were about to lose their house and all kind of complexity in their life went back to their finances. They said, we just, we just want to know how to orient our life around God's, around God's word. And so they got in the group and they began to make progress and they began to, for the first time, begin to tithe and begin to, begin to give and begin to save. And they began to, uh, begin to budget, leave, live on a budget. And things just began to like, kind of shift and kind of be healthy in their life. They, um, they found somebody to live in their basement and uh, who would pay. And so that, was, that helped big time. And then they said that when they started to tithe, that um, the month that they started to tithe, the, the wife said that she got a gift card in the mail, random gift card in the mail from AT&T, $200 gift card from AT&T. She's like, I've never received, it wasn't a rebate, it was just a gift card. I don't know, I've never received an AT&T gift card for $200. I would welcome that. But it was $200 gift card from AT&T. And that was exactly their tithe for that month. And so <laughs> what, what, what God was saying is that I'm going I'm to take care of you. I mean, even, even the situation, the complexity, even going without a job, they still tithe. And God was saying, I'm going to take care of you. Bless you. And I'm going to bless you. God was saying, I'm going to bless you for your obedience. And... <clears throat> So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to care for you. And some of us, we just need to know that God's going to bless us if we obey him. But, but it's in the context of community. The, the 10-year-old son of this family, Jake, said he only said like a handful of words the entire time, maybe 10 words the entire semester. When they were leaving that night, the 10-year-old son came to him, comes to him and said, um, Sir, can, can you please not stop having small group? And Jake was like, I'm going to keep having small group that even the 10-year-old boy understood the power of gathering together in community. Think about it. We're still here today, 2,000 years later, because of Jesus' first small group. And he gathered that small group together, and he loved them, and he shared his life with them. He loved them like they had never been loved before, and they saw Jesus' love like no one had ever loved before. Love 
It was for love that he went to the cross. It was for love that he laid down his life. And right before he went to the cross, he gathered them together, his small group in a small room. And he said this to him. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus said, I want you to love. I want you to love like crazy. I want you to love so persistently and so sacrificially. I want you, as you've seen me love, I want you to love people. I want you to love faithfully and I want you to love fully. And I want you to love, I want you to love so much that it's scary. He's just saying, I want you to be, church, I want you to be the most loving group of people in the world. And so here's what he's saying to us as 12 stone. And the good news is you don't have to be the smartest. You don't have to be the fastest. You don't have to be the wealthiest. You don't have to be the most successful. You don't have to be the best looking, although you are good looking. You don't have to be the best looking. He's just saying, you just need to be the most loving. That's what we're called to be. He said, this is how they'll know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. It's the signature of Jesus on your life. So you want to know how you're growing or if you're growing in spiritual maturity? The second one is love unconditionally. Love unconditionally. I believe the best litmus test question for are you growing in spiritual maturity is are you more loving today than you were yesterday? If you're more loving today than you were yesterday, you're growing in spiritual maturity. That's what Jesus said. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Are you more loving today than you were yesterday? It's a great question. Because if I'm growing in Christ-likeness, I'm loving my wife more today. I'm loving my kids more today. I'm loving my coworkers more today. I'm loving my friends more today. I'm loving strangers more today. Message, are you growing in compassion and care for people who are different than you? Have you noticed how easy it is to love people who like you and are like you? See, the test of love is, do you love people who are different than you? People who dress different than you and act different than you. People that believe different than you. People with different sexual orientation than you. People of different race than you. People that live in different neighborhoods and go to different schools. People with different lifestyles. Different value systems. People that vote different than you. How are you doing loving people that are different than you? Because to love unconditionally means that your love is without condition. So regardless what someone is like or what someone believes or how someone behaves, you say, I'm going to love you. And this is Jesus' love. This is the way he loved without condition. He went against the norms and the traditions and the religious system of the day in the way he loved. He loved the tax collector and the prostitute. He loved the lepers and the sinners and the Romans and the centurions. He loved them all and it drove the religious leaders crazy. This is what they said about Jesus. Look at this verse. It says, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They were trying to roast Jesus. They were trying to, they were try, this, was meant to this was meant to be a slam on Jesus, but Luke wrote it in here as a compliment because <laughs> that's the signature. That Jesus made room in his life for people who were different than him. And I just wonder, how are we doing it loving like that? See, Jesus' life wasn't just some random string of accidental stream of random acts of kindness. It, it was a divine collection of an intentional acts of unconditional love. And so how are we doing it going outside the camp at leaving the cow path of our lives and going and loving people who are different than us? I think, um, I think sometimes we gravitate to easier forms of saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. 
Like, man, I will um, slap a sticker on my car. I'll put on a Christian t-shirt. Or maybe the music that we listen to or the podcast that we download. Or maybe we, we Instagram, you know, we, we go and we you know, put God talk on things or we Instagram like a picture of our Bible and a cup of coffee and say, oh, just having good, good quiet time with Jesus today. And I just got to let everybody know. What you don't know is that, that maybe you flipped off somebody when you were driving down the road. But, but please, please look at my Instagram and go. See, when Jesus said, this is how they'll know that you're my disciples, he didn't say, this is how they'll know you're, you're my disciples by your tattoo. This is how they'll know that you're my disciples by your social media. This is how they'll know you're my disciples by the retweets. This is how they'll know that you're my disciples by your email ministry. Email is not a ministry, okay? For some, some of you have this forwarding ministry going on. That's not how Jesus said they would know that you're my disciples. Jesus said, this is how they'll know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. The signature of Jesus on your life is the way that you love. And greater Gwinnett is waiting to see a people who said, we will love sacrificially. We'll give of ourselves to love you, regardless where you've been, regardless where you, what you've done. The kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus loves you, and I do too. And they don't know that Jesus loves them unless they know that we love them first. And so the world is waiting to see not another sticker on a car, but the world is waiting to see somebody who will stop and somebody who will show unconditional love in a way that's inconvenient, absolutely. In a way that slows us down, absolutely. In a way that sets us back, absolutely. You say, if you want to find your life, you've got to be willing to lose it. To set aside status, to set aside prestige, to set aside the praise of men. And be able to say, you know what, I'm, a, I'm just going to love you. Because I want you to know he loves you too. And when we have that fire, that love burning in our hearts, and we share that with our lives, then they know. They know who we're with. They know who we're representing. And so the call for you is say, how do I know if I'm growing in spiritual maturity? Are you living intentional? Are you loving unconditional? And we've all got room to grow in this. And I got good news for you. It's his construction project. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for loving us so much that you'd send your son. That he would lay down his life on the cross so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be restored, so that in a moment we could be one with you, made right with you. Father, maybe there are some today who for the first time just need to say, God, I want to know you and I receive what Jesus did. I put my trust in what Jesus did for me. You need to say yes to him today. You say, Jesus, I give my life to you. I want to follow you. I need your forgiveness. My life is yours. God, maybe there are others of us and we just... We just need to engage back in your construction project and let you do a work in us. Maybe we've been running from you. Maybe we've been resisting you. Maybe we've been thinking that our way is better. But God, today it's a returning. God, would you help us find our why? I pray for those right now who feel purposeless, 
meaninglessness, hopeless. God, I pray that right now in this moment, that as they begin to seek you, and as they turn to you, Lord, would you, would you give them such a sense of your presence and of your purpose for their life? That you haven't left them, you haven't forsaken them. And God, I pray that the more that they seek you, the clearer their purpose will become. And then, God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that are just worn out, that are tired, that are exhausted, that are burdened. They've been saying yes to everything. And today, you want to take some of that burden. You just want them to lay some things down. Even right now, would you speak to their hearts and say, you can lay that down. I mean, just even specific things right now that would come to mind that they can just let go of. I just pray for releasing today. You say, come to me, all you are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Would they be able to live from a place of rest that comes from being single-minded and know what to give their yes to? And then, God, I pray that you'd help us all love more. We want to love like you love Jesus. Help us see people how you see people. Even right now, would you bring a face or a name to mind of somebody this week that we can love intentionally and unconditionally? Somebody that you've brought into our lives for the sole purpose that they would receive your kind of love. So we need your love to flow through us and into that relationship. God, would you give us the courage to love like you love? Would, would we take risk in the way that we love? And then would we see people's lives changed and more people made more like Jesus as you're shaping and forming us in the image of your son. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.